Well, good morning. So I just want to, before we dive into the message this morning, I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit and just acknowledge kind of where we are in this sermon series, kind of what we're doing. So since I started officially as your pastor a few weeks ago, we've been going through the book of the book of Psalms. Uh, not just not just not the entire thing, but we're we're really focusing on the first section of the book of Psalms. See, Psalms is divided up into five books. Uh, I could at one point I could have told you where all the chapters divide, um, but I believe it's Psalm one through forty-two is the first book of the Psalms. So what I what I did uh, when I was planning a sermon series is I just went to that first book of the Psalms. And I looked at it and I prayed and then I literally picked just five or six psalms at random to go through. I let the Holy Spirit decide for me. And so those are the psalms that we're going through. We're going to have an Advent series uh, starting in a few weeks and uh, beginning in December. Uh, But for now, we're just going through different psalms. And I want to acknowledge that some of the things that we're going through are kind of repetitive a little bit. And I I just want to say that that's okay. In In the first book of the Psalter, There's a lot of lament psalms, a lot of psalms that cry out to God in complaint about something, crying out to God because of sickness, because of sin, because of enemies surrounding the psalmist. That's a really common one. That's going to be one that we see today. But it's okay that there's some overlap in themes here. Especially it's okay that we have a bunch of psalms that are focused on lament. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. But if you turn on Christian radio, and again, there's nothing wrong with Christian radio, but if you turn on Christian radio, you're going to hear a lot of song, a lot of songs, excuse me, that are happy. A lot of songs that are praise music. And that's good. We need those songs. But sometimes if we just focus on all of the good songs, all of the happy songs, the troubles in our life, the trials in our life don't really seem to fit there. We asked the question a few weeks ago, do we have to be happy in order to come to church? And the answer is no. You can come to church full of sorrow in your heart. You can come to church being broken by the situations and the circumstances that surround you. That's okay. You don't always have to come in and put on a giant smile. That's not what church is. That's not what church is about. That's why we're looking at these psalms. So we can, we can cry out if we need to. If we, we can cry out along with the psalmist, Cry to God in the midst of the pain and the brokenness in our life. Now, if you're here and you're experiencing nothing but blue skies and, you know, sunny days, then praise God for you. But I encourage you to come and and weep this morning with those who weep, with those who come with those troubles and those trials. Come join your brothers and sisters as we look at another psalm of lament this morning. And as we look at what that means for our Christian life. So that being said, let's read Psalm 17 this morning. Hear these words. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold what is right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. 
I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we hear your words. Lord, we are reminded that this is not these are not my words. Lord, you used a donkey to deliver your messages in the Old Testament, Father. The special thing is that it's your word, that these are the words that come from the living God. I pray that you would minimize me this morning and maximize you. Glorify yourself in my heart and the hearts of everyone here. Give us the message that you have for us this morning, the message from you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So this psalm is written, the heading on it is a prayer of David. And we don't know when David wrote this psalm. There's not a, you know, some of the psalms have, hey, this was written during this time. We don't don't know. There's nothing like that in front of this psalm. But I think it's fair for us to kind of use a little conjecture to, to make an educated guess as to what the circumstances and the situation of the psalm are. And again, we don't know this, but this fits really well with David's flight from Saul before he was king. So just to give you a brief chronology of history, about 2,000 years ago was Jesus Christ, right? About 1,000 years before that, 1,000 years BC, King David lived. He's the one who wrote a gigantic chunk of all of these psalms. Uh, He is one one of the earliest ancestors of Jesus. He's one of the great figures in Israelite history, one of the great figures in the Bible. But the way David became king is, it's a really interesting story. For a while, Israel didn't have any king. They came out from Egypt, uh, and they just kind of settled in the land, and they didn't have any kings. And according to the book of Judges, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges is full of really, really interesting stories during that time when men rebelled against God, and there wasn't a king. At the beginning of the next little sequence of events, which is described in 1 Samuel, Israel comes to, they come to God, really, and they say, hey, we want a king just like all of the nations around us. And God answers and says, listen, it's really not time for you guys to have a king yet. You'll have a king, but not, not right now and not like this. You shouldn't just want to be like the nations around you. That's, that's not really the point. Uh, but the people say, no, no, we really, we really want a king. So God says, all right, here is King Saul. And Saul became the first king of Israel, of many kings of Israel. 
Saul had a responsibility as the king of Israel to love God, to serve God, to bring the people along in the ways of God. He was kind of the leader of the nation, the leader in uh, helping the people to keep the covenant. But Saul didn't keep the covenant like he was supposed to. Saul wound up being a bad king. So God said, hey, I'm going to remove you from being the king. You're not going to be the king forever. And your son's not going to be the king either. Because normally in that time, the firstborn son would have taken over from the king. He said, not you, not your son. We're going to go to someone else. So God sent the prophet Samuel to go anoint a shepherd boy named David. And it's actually a really interesting story. So Samuel shows up to, to this farm, and he talks to David's dad, Jesse, and he says, hey, one of your sons is going to be anointed king. And Jesse thinks, well, that's great. That's fantastic. Here are all of my you know, grown adult sons. Look at how big and strong they are. Aren't they going to make excellent kings? And Samuel says, no, the, the king's not one of them. Are you sure you don't have another son? And Jesse says, well, no, unless you mean the scrawny teenage shepherd boy who's out in the field who I didn't think that you would want to see. And Samuel says, yeah, I want to see that boy. Bring him here. And so they go and get David, and Samuel anoints him king And from that moment, the hand of God is on David in a very, very special way. David did not immediately become king of Israel. He had to wait a really, really long time. And through through a series of events, uh, you may be familiar with them, he kills a giant named Goliath. But through a series of events, David began, he's actually accepted into the household of King Saul. He's sort of adopted, if you will. David becomes really good friends with the heir to the throne, Jonathan, Saul's son. And he lives for a while in the household of the king that he's going to replace in peace. But that doesn't last forever. Eventually, Saul gets angry. Saul starts to slip as he gets older. He starts to deal with, uh, we're, not, we're not entirely sure what's going on. The Bible says an evil spirit that may have meant demon possession. It may have just meant you know, some mental health issues. We're not entirely sure. But, but Saul started to deal with some stuff, and he re- started reaching out and lashing out to David. He made a plan to kill David. David heard about the plan, and David escaped. But for a while, in the last half of Saul's kingship, David was on the run from Saul. Saul wanted David dead. He was a threat to his throne. And so David wandered in the wilderness away from Saul. He was hunted by Saul and his armies. David made his home among Israel's enemies. He even fought for the Philistines against Israel at times because he was fleeing for his life from the king. And again, we don't know whether or not this psalm was written in that situation. We don't don't know that. But it fits really well. David's crying out to God. He says, God, all of these people have surrounded me. I'm running for my life. I'm running scared. I need some help here. David starts out this psalm by saying that that he's innocent. He hasn't committed any crimes here. He says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. This is verse 3. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. If that language sounds familiar, we talked about it in Psalm 1 several weeks ago. There's the two paths. David says, hey, I've picked picked the right one. And you might be thinking, if you were here last week, and you remember uh, the sermon on Psalm 14, where we talked about how there's none righteous, no, not one, you might be asking, wait, how is David innocent here? Isn't everyone a sinner? And the answer to that is, of course, yes. 
But if you remember the second half of what we talked about last week, there is righteousness available in Christ. We are, those of us who believe, those of us who trust in Christ, are declared righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done, because of his mercy towards us. But it's more likely here that when David says, hey, I'm, I'm righteous, he, he's certainly talking about being righteous in Christ, even though he might not know who Jesus Christ is at this time. But he's just saying, hey, I haven't committed any crimes. The king's after me. The king's army is after me. It, they're acting as if I have committed high treason, and I haven't. I haven't done anything. Sure, he was anointed king, but he hasn't made any attempts to, to start a revolution or to do anything like that. David's an innocent man. But he's being pursued. He's being hounded by wicked men. So David does what he does best, and he turns to God. And he cries out for deliverance to God. In verse number 6, I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. The word for steadfast love there, and again, this is one of those times where we see a theme kind of repeated through these psalms. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's the word chesed. You can remember that because it's really fun to say. It's chesed. And that word translated in English versions is a lot of the time steadfast love. In the old King James, it was always translated loving kindness. But it's really hard to translate because it captures a really a much deeper idea than just really intense love. The idea there is covenant faithfulness. God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to the promises that he has made to Israel as a nation. In fact, the words that the psalmist here is using in verse number seven, it directly goes back to one of the praise songs we find in the book of Exodus. Right after God had delivered Israel from Egypt, those people were also being pursued by an army because of crimes they didn't commit. They were just escaping from slavery. But Pharaoh and his army pushed them up against the Red Sea. And God opened up that sea, and they walked right through. And after that, Exodus chapter 15 was written. It's the song of Miriam. It's the song about how great God is and the wonders that he has done for us. And what the psalmist here, what David's doing, is he's looking back to that psalm. And he's using some of the same words. What he's saying here, and most Israelites, when they heard this, they would have picked this up. God, show the steadfast love that you showed back then. Show the covenant faithfulness that you showed to them back then at the Red Sea. You were the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. You were the one who was faithful to them. You were the one who came down to them and developed a relationship with them. Because of that steadfast love, hear my prayer. Wondrously show your steadfast love as you did then. Show your steadfast love again. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. You can picture David as he's described in the Bible, in the book of 1 Samuel, hiding out in a cave, surrounded by the armies of the king who are out to kill him. He has a few loyal men with him, but he doesn't have much more than that. All he has, really, at the end of the day, is God. God is his only strength. God is his only sustenance. God is his only rescue. And he prays for God to deliver him, to wondrously show his steadfast love. 
In verse number 13, David prays for strong military intervention. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. David prays for deliverance. He prays that God will free him from the men who are surrounding him. Then David prays something really interesting. And I, I kind of want to zoom in on these last couple verses and these last couple statements by David. He says something really interesting. He says, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. What does that mean? Their portion is in this life. Their reward is in this life. What they get is in this life. That could mean a few different things here. If you, if you had a couple different translations of the Bible open, I'm reading from the ESV here, the Pew Bibles or NIV. I don't know what you guys are reading. But it, it takes it a few different ways. The translation, it's a little bit difficult here. So we're not entirely sure what's going on. But one thing we know for certainty is that David is praying for his enemies here. And he's noting that their reward is what they get in this life. It's not anything beyond that. This is the best it gets for the wicked. Their reward is here. They don't have anything else to look forward to. See, we know as Christians, we know from our theology that God alone is infinite. God alone is big. God alone is expansive. Everything else that God has created is finite. It's limited. It's creation. And so what we are meant to do when we experience creation, experience created things, we're supposed to enjoy them, and we're supposed to look to God through them. But so often, as the book of Romans states, we worship the created thing instead of the creator. Throughout history, um, mankind has worshipped money, sex, and power. Those are the three things that we look at. None of, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But when, when we divorce their original purpose, glorifying God, when we, when we take that out of the equation and we just look after those things for their own sake, then we start to run into problems. Let's focus on money. So a couple weeks ago, I think it was last week actually, the Powerball or the Mega Millions, one of those hit something like $1.3 billion. Now, I don't know how much money that is, right? Like I have a pretty good idea in my head of how much a million dollars is, right? Uh, it's usually a pretty good target. You want a million dollars before you can retire. Um, so that, that's kind of in my head. $100 million, I have, I have no idea. I mean, I know it's 100 times that amount, but as far as what I could buy, maybe a really nice house, a yacht, something like that. But a billion dollars? That is a lot of money. And someone in South Carolina, uh, whose name I don't believe that we know, they won $1.3 billion, taxed about half of it to the government, and are now very, very rich at having half a billion dollars. They went from rags to riches. However much money they had before, I'm sure they didn't have half of a billion dollars. Do you think that money made them happy? Do you think that money satisfied the itch that was in their soul? I'm willing to bet it didn't. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that money is, you know, totally worthless to them. I'm sure maybe there were some 
There are some bills that they had to pay. Maybe now they don't have to worry about college. Maybe now there's a few things that, hey, those are settled, those are taken care of. Praise God. I'm talking about ultimate happiness here. I imagine that they take that half a billion dollars, they take their prize, and they think, finally, I can get everything and be happy. Everything that will finally make me happy. They will find, as they spend money on things and possessions and experiences, that every single one of those things, when separated from the God who created them, from the God who is supposed to be honored and glorified through them, when they look after the things, of them, the things themselves, they will find them to be worthless because God is the thing that brings them, that brings joy in and through those things. God and God alone. So when David prays that their portion is in this life, their reward is in this life, he means that this is as good as it gets. The wicked men who surround him may have money, sex, and power. They may have all of these things that humanity has lusted after for thousands of years, things that humanity thinks that bring happiness to people. They may have those. But at the end of the day, when they reach their final destination, they will realize that apart from God, there is no joy. Apart from God, there is no happiness. Apart from God, there is nothing. They have their reward. Their reward is in this life. And at the end of everything, the reward will turn to ash in their mouth as they find out how worthless anything is without the God who created it. David goes on in verse number 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The men of this world, the men who surrounded him, the wicked men, their reward is in this life. That's as good as it gets for them. But for David, who had nothing here, Picture David just hiding out in a cave, maybe a few possessions, certainly some men who were loyal to him. But in, in terms of wealth, in terms of prosperity, in terms of influence, he had very, very little. But he had God. He had a God who he could delight in. See, David knew that happiness, that satisfaction, does not come through the things that God created. There's nothing wrong with the things that God created. We can enjoy them if we're enjoying God through them. Happiness and satisfaction only comes through God. David's saying, I may have nothing, but I have God. I can be satisfied in God. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David looked forward to a day where he was delivered. He looked forward to a day where his trouble, where his trial here was over, where God had delivered him, and when he would have perfect fellowship with God. Friends, we can have that same joy. We can have that same satisfaction. We can look forward to the day when all of our troubles, when all of our trials will be over. Unlike the men of the world, we know where there is true satisfaction. We know that true happiness is found in God and God alone. And at the end of the day, when we finally enter eternity, when all of the things of this world have passed behind us, and when we see God, we can be satisfied in him. We can rejoice in him because we know that in him and in him alone is satisfaction. So with that thought, let us go into this week 
as we encounter troubles, as we encounter trials, let us look to God and to him alone, because only in him is satisfaction. Let's pray together.